If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, please take it and turn uh, to Luke 18. Luke 18. Just in effort to set the table for a moment, imagine with me that you are, you are a spectator. You're a spectator and you heard of Jesus. Maybe you're impressed, but not quite convinced of all that people say he is, all that people believe him to be. You're part of a crowd. It seemed like wherever Jesus went, there was a crowd that followed him. And you have a season of your life where the time has opened up and you can spend some time, you can spend some time listening to this traveling teacher named Jesus. You've heard of the miracles that he's done. You've met, you've met people who've been changed by his teaching. They said he, he speaks in a different way, he seems to speak with an authority I've never heard anybody speak with. You're going to watch him closely. You need to see it for yourself. Well, let, let people talk about him as they may. You need to see it for yourself. So you approach him. You're listening closely. What will he say? Who will matter to this man named Jesus? You've heard he's passing through on his way to Jerusalem. So if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verse 15. Is Gretchen Mahoney here? There she is, right there. Could you come and read for us this morning? Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Thank you, Gretchen. Is Again, as you are deciding like what Jesus is all about, as you witness this single event, just three verses here in this passage, you're going to hear something that would ring consistent in your impression of Jesus, what you'd heard about and maybe what you've seen with your own eyes. What you see in this passage is specifically the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus. Did you notice he says, let the little, little children come to me. This is his heart. Don't hinder them. So what, what does the text say? People were bringing infants to Jesus. And, and this is pretty normal. So a lot of people seem to want a lot from Jesus. Wherever he went, seem, people always seem to want something from him. And so there's a crowd and there are presumably parents that are bringing their children to Jesus and they want something from him. They want Jesus to, to touch them. The, the children. And, and there was kind of a long-standing Jewish tradition that by a rabbi, you know, touching a child, touching an infant, it would confer some sort of blessing on that child. And you think even in the book of Luke, so if we had read the whole book of Luke this morning, we would have come to a place where we would have heard Jesus on multiple occasions reached out his hand to someone that was sick and he touched them and they were healed. And so these parents are bringing their infants, even their infants, to Jesus that he might touch them. 
It's not surprising that they would especially care maybe even for the health of their children. The infant mortality rate would be staggering in that time period. Maybe if Jesus touches them, blesses them, they'll have a chance of survival when many kids did not. The disciples see this. And they, what does the text say? It says they rebuked. They rebuked those that were doing that. Presumably, again, the parents, they rebuked them and said, wait, wait, wait. Why, why do they rebuke? Why do the disciples function as kind of the secret service agents? You know, no, 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 no. Keep, keep your distance. Jesus has got things he needs to do. Why, why do they function as kind of the spiritual bouncers? Jesus has got other things to, to worry about. Don't, don't, you know, keep, keep your distance. Why do they do this? Actually, the text doesn't say specifically, but I don't think it's hard to piece a couple things together and, and get down to a basic explanation. I, th- I, I think what the disciples wanted to do is that they saw that these are people that really don't need to matter to Jesus right now. I think that's the basic thing driving their action. Let's, you know, give, give them space. You've got other things to do. Other people really matter to Jesus right now. Sometimes our modern view of children make it hard to process, especially passages like this. It needs to be corrected a little bit because it really is a modern view. In ancient times, children wouldn't have been like, I mean, for us, they're the subject of just endless Facebook posts, Instagram posts. I mean, did you see the 30 pictures of my kid smiling? And like, that's so normal. Did you see the, my, my grandchild? I just happen to have a picture right here. You know, I mean, this is, this is the way everything rolls nowadays. If you were to look at my hard drive, I have, I have thousands of pictures. It's funny, I, I have more pictures of our firstborn than our second, and more of those than our, th- it's just the way those things go. Sorry for the youngest on that. But I, I we care about kids. Like, significant events in their lives are documented. And they mean something to us. We're always up for the cute clip from America's Funniest Videos. We're always ready to see the cute kid dancing like nobody's watching on the Ellen show. I mean, this is good times. We, we treasure kids. People make a lot of money off the fact that we treasure kids. Jesus lived in a different world. Not one of sentimentality of children. So one New Testament scholar says this, Jesus had no romanticized view of children. They in that culture had no power, no rights, no status. This is what the scholar says. They were insignificant and disposable. So when the disciples see these infants, and maybe that helps us a little bit more understand why, no, 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 Jesus doesn't have time for this. Maybe they're, you know, whispering in Jesus' ear, you, you need to maximize your productivity. You need to spend time with the influencers because influencers can influence others. These kids, like Jesus, you need to do what only you can do. That's good management advice. Only do what only you can do. Jesus, only you can walk on water. Only you can feed 5,000 hungry people. Any old rabbi can bless these kids. Whatever reason, they're, they're kind of communicating, these are not worth your time. As Christians, I have to wonder when I read a passage like this, do we think of ourselves at times like the spiritual gatekeepers of who gets to Jesus? Do we try to be that? Do we prejudge in our mind? 
I mean, we'd never physically probably wall someone off from like, you stay out of church. But do we, in our mind, prejudge people by their appearance or by what we know of their past or by some frustration we've had or by some experience we know of? Or we say, I think a lot of people are prime candidates to be Christians. I'm not sure you're one of them. It's not that you don't need it. You really need it. I just don't think, you know, you're serious now, but give you six months, you won't even care. Do we in our minds do exactly what Jesus told us not to do in Matthew 7? Jesus said, judge not, which certainly didn't mean we couldn't be discerning in areas, but he meant don't prejudge people. Don't do this, but so often we're tempted to do that. We can't conceive of them being Christians, and so we, we think we know prime candidate to be a Christian, boy, if God got, ever a hold, got a hold of their life, they would be amazing. Ah, not so much that person. That person probably doesn't even need to apply. Do we do that? What does it say to us that Jesus called to the disciples and he says, come over here, and then he rebukes them? He says it kind of positively and negatively. If they didn't get it, you know, let the little children come to me. And don't, don't hinder them. It tells us at least this. It tells us that those infants mattered to Jesus. I think it also tells us they should matter to us. I don't think this is like the driving point of what Jesus is saying, but I, I think it's worth just spending a few moments to make sure we recognize that Jesus cares for these little children. Praise the Lord for life. Praise the Lord for newborn life. This sure shapes our ministry in a great way. It shapes our children's ministry. We have a disproportionate amount of workers and resources going to children and ministry. I mean, it's a lot. It's a lot. A lot of you invest time in that. A lot of the offerings go to serving our kids well. Why would we put a disproportionate amount of that when, the, when there's lots of other things that maybe could be done? Well, we recognize what Christians have always recognized is that children matter to God. He cares about them. And, and again, I don't think this is the main point of this passage, but I think it's worth saying those children that are unborn matter to God. And Christians have recognized this. They matter to Jesus. He knows every life that's been conceived. He's the author of that life. We understand that orphans matter to God. We, we recognize that the kids that aren't going to grow up in an ideal situation, they matter to God. That's why I'm so amazed when I see uncles and aunts and grandparents raise these little children because of of some some difficult things with their biological parents, and they step in because they know these kids matter and someone should take care of them. We understand that, that even those children that have mental disabilities or physical disabilities, do they matter to God? They surely matter to Him. He would say, bring them to me. Don't hinder them from coming. Even those adults that have mental capacity like a child, they matter to God. Christians have always recognized this. Jesus would care for those people. Jesus would say, don't you dare put up a wall and prevent them from coming. 
those that are vulnerable at the beginning of life, those that are vulnerable even at the end of life, they matter to God. And what disciples are meant to do, so we say, like, I follow Jesus. I am, I'm giving my allegiance to Jesus. What disciples are, are told to do is to enable people come, to come to Jesus rather than hinder them. To enable people to receive the blessings of the good news. So we ought to be that kind of follower of Jesus that we communicate to we communicate to our coworkers or our friends or our neighbors, our roommates. I think God would welcome you. I think you matter to him. Not just individually, but as a community. Should we not, church, should we not, as a church, extend that welcoming heart of God? We're the community of Jesus. And we're meant to be a different kind of community than any other community on this earth. And we're meant to be the community where every single person is treated with dignity because they matter to God. And every single person is treated with sensitivity because they matter to God. And every person is received because they matter to God. And every person is loved. So Luke 18 talks about this widow that's crying out for justice. And God would say, she matters. And and Luke 18 tells the story of a, a tax collector that everybody else says, ah, what a... What a jerk, a person on the margins, a a traitor to his country. And Jesus would say, when that tax collector cries out and says, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner, he matters to God. Some of you might wonder if it's ever possible to be received like that. Oh, our church, we're, we're trying, we're not perfect at this, but we're trying to be that community that extends that welcoming heart of God. Because we all know what it's like to be on the other side of the equation where we're not received, but we're rejected. Our culture knows how to label really quickly. And once you get some of those labels, they seem to stick and they seem to become even identifiers to you and you bear shame because of this. And, and sometimes we, we, we think, could I ever be received? So where are you? Where are you with God? You see the heart of Jesus welcoming you. Are you rebuilding your faith? Kind of piece by piece trying to put it all back together? Jesus would receive you. Are you weary and tired from life? Jesus will receive you. Are, you. are you running? Are you lost? Are you confused? Jesus will receive you. He would welcome you. Are you feeling like you've never quite belonged? That lots of people seem to say, yeah, why don't you just kind of go away? Get, get out of here. Jesus would be the one saying, don't hinder them. Don't hinder them. So here we are. Again, I take us back. Like, so we're the observer watching this, watching Jesus and we notice, we notice what he did. We notice how he calls out his disciples for not doing what he wants them to do. So we move kind of from the heart of Jesus and, and we move to what it means to be a disciple because Jesus explains this. And, and, and a disciple is meant to trust. The trust of a disciple. Because this is what Jesus says. Who, whoever does not, in verse 17, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child won't enter it. As Gretchen read earlier, to... The ones who are like a child to those kinds of people, to such belong the kingdom of God, the the reign of God, the rule of God. Those who receive the kingdom of God. Other synonyms in this same, same chapter are like receiving as a gift, inheriting eternal life, being saved, being rescued from the place of spiritual danger. So Jesus says you, there's something about that child the trust they would have. And he says, this is the way of the disciple. 
We receive the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God like a child. It's easy to import everything we love about children here. So we think of how children are trusting and how they are humble and they're receptive and they, they're sometimes just unaware of everything around them and it, it's fun to watch. They're transparent, they're hopeful, they're simple, they're excited. I don't think what Jesus is asking us to do is like import everything we ever thought about of a child and all the idealized qualities and just kind of load those into this. I think he's calling out a very specific quality of children, especially in light of the infants coming to him and Jesus saying, don't refuse them. I think the goal of naming children and receiving the kingdom of God like a child is recognize children, especially those infants, are helpless and totally dependent. That's what I think Jesus is getting at. Hopeless and totally dependent. They're vulnerable. They're going to have needs that don't always come at opportune times. They, are, they, are, they need someone to care for them. Everything is a gift to them. And Jesus is saying, just as they depend on this, so the life of a follower of Jesus, the life of a Christian, the life of someone who has been rescued by God's grace, who has been saved, is going going to be one of words. And we're going to use words like this regularly in church, like depend on the Lord, trust in the Lord, rely on the Lord, believe in the Lord. We're going to use that language regularly. Have faith in God. These These are our core vocabulary to express what it means to be a follower of Jesus. John eleven twenty five and 26 says, the one who believes in Jesus never dies. John three sixteen. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe, whoever would rely, whoever would be totally dependent on him would not perish. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, without trust, without reliance, without dependence, it's actually impossible to please God. Romans talks about faith being credited as righteousness. Our righteousness comes because we're dependent not on ourselves. Paul would say in Acts 16, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, rely on him, depend on him, and you will be saved. Ephesians 2 would say, for by grace are you saved through relying, through depending, through having faith. It's a gift of God. You must have faith. You must have this complete dependence on God, our maker. So certainly we're supposed to grow into maturity. And there's uh, other sermons for other days on that. This one is highlighting something very, very critical about what it means to be a child that has total dependence on God, our maker, Jesus, our redeemer, the Holy Spirit, our sustainer. Such a simple point. But there we are. So we're, we're hearing Jesus call out faith like a child and we go... I don't know about that, Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're hearing that. And there's something in you that wants to resist that. You maybe even, you know, I mean, far be it from us, but maybe you even want to push back against Jesus a little bit because he's saying total dependence, total reliance on God. You say, wait a minute, I don't like, I don't like a religious faith that portrays me as helpless. I'm not, so, so, I'm not so comfortable with being portrayed as helpless. As a matter of fact, you know, I go by this motto. God helps those who help themselves. So Jesus, I hear you say, receive. You don't work. You don't, you don't have to earn it. But, but Jesus, I carry my own weight, even with God. 
I have this arrangement with him where, you know, it, it doesn't 100% rely on me, but I, I do my part, and I know he'll do his part. Well, that is one way of looking at the world. That's one way of putting it all together. It's just not the way that Jesus gave us. It's not the way he gave us. Jesus, the people that approached him that had their list of good behavior and recited their list of accomplishments, yeah, that didn't go too well for them regularly when they met Jesus. Too many of them walked away. So Jesus came for the sick and came for the lost and came for the rebellious. Has he come for you or... Or do you say, actually, I don't think I need you, Jesus. If it's helpless, yeah, I'm not that. Totally dependent on you, uh, I think I can do a lot on my own. Maybe that's the objection you bring when you hear Jesus talk about receiving like a child. Or maybe you have a different objection. Maybe this is where we struggle as well. Certainly people have levied like a critique of Christianity saying, yeah, I mean, believing in Jesus, religion in general, believing in an ancient book, an ancient story, that's just childish. I mean, isn't that exact? I mean, Jesus saying you have to receive it like a child. Yeah, only that's, that's kiddie stuff. And you grow up to a certain point and you got to do life as grown up. You've got to learn, and I've heard this as a verb now, to adult. You can adult. I mean, when you, when you have to say, ah, I, I know all those things I was taught and not the, all the stories, but like I, 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 I've had different perspectives now. And there's all sorts of like foolish and silly and fun stuff that we do as kids. We have make-believe characters and, and we think, you know, uh, we, our, our teachers never leave school. They're always at school. So we see them at the mall and go, I never knew you. I mean, we think all sorts of silly things when we're kids, but, but at some point, like, you've got to grow, grow up. And when, if you don't, like, then we have a situation on our hands that everybody else has to suffer because you didn't grow up. That's kind of the way I process all the stuff I heard. I'm just not so sure. Like, I, I, I've grown up. And I, I don't know that I have to believe these sorts of things. There's all sorts of immature things we believed at one point, but when we confront it with reality, it falls apart. Lots of kids believe their dad's the strongest person in the world. Lots of kids, if you hand them a $10 bill, think that's a million dollars. And you want to tell them, just grow up, that won't go very far. Immature. Is that, is that the way it is here? I mean, is, is Jesus saying you have to believe like a child and you say, I, I gave up like... On that long time ago, I was confronted with a set of facts, a, a differing opinion than what I learned in church, what, what you're talking about, a different way of looking at things, and I realized that, you know, I, I, I need to grow up. And bless those poor people, they're misguided at best, but I've had to grow up in my, how I process the world needed to match reality, not just like kitty stuff. In so many ways, it's right to grow up and leave childish things behind. I don't think that applies to just every area of life. I think there are those things that we learn as a child that we receive, and and a child gives us the best representation of that I don't think we ever outgrow. So uh, imagine this in a different context. Imagine if you're you're a mom or you're a dad and you're talking to a 16-year-old 
and you want to instill that 16-year-old with confidence and you want them to know their love. So you tell them that. I, I love you and I'm, I'm so proud of you. I, I think you're going to do great things and you're trying to build, build them up. And imagine they say, well, stop the conversation. Stop the conversation, Dad. Stop the conversation, Mom. Yeah, I don't... I, I used to think that when I was a kid. That you really felt that way. I kind of know better. You don't have to pretend. I know it's just biology. It just happened. I'm here. Kind of a blob of cells. I, I get it. I get it. We don't have to pretend anymore. It's just DNA. I don't really matter to you. I mean, I can think of few things that would be so heartbreaking. And the reason why it would be heartbreaking is not because that person, oh, wow, now they're mature and they realize it. No, they haven't. They're actually not. They're not believing true things. They didn't just stumble across the truth. They didn't just pierce through the lie that all the parents know but don't want to tell. No, in relationships, they aren't more grown up because they have a cynical conclusion here. There's something beautiful and true and good that the teenager would be missing, that they may have understood perfectly when they're, when they're five or six, and that is their mom and their dad loved them and cared for them and would do just about anything for them. And that is true. And you never would outgrow that. There are deep dynamics at play, and the instinct of the person as a child was right. You don't outgrow that. You, you, you don't outgrow that in, in a husband and wife relationship. I mean, I... I have a privilege of doing weddings and I'm seeing, you know, people in their early 20s, sickness and in health, till death do us part. They're kids. Do they really understand it? So should we expect when they have a grown-up kind of perspective, in 30 years they're going to go, yeah, all that stuff. We kind of outgrew. That was kid stuff. That was kid stuff. Now, we, we don't think of covenant that way. No, actually... As a relationship matures, you don't outgrow that. You don't grow cynical of that. Actually, as a relationship matures in the way God would want it to, I have watched, I have watched women care for their husbands and husbands care for their wives. I've watched this in powerful ways. They didn't grow cynical. Actually, it grew deeper. They meant what they said when they were 20. They had no idea of the cost of the covenant. But 35 years down the road, they know it. And they would say, I, I mean it more now than ever before. We don't say, you should have outgrown that. It didn't mean anything. Soldiers training together in boot camp. Most of them are kids. 18 years old. They forged this bond that, I mean, I hear 70-year-olds talk about their war buddy that was 50 years ago. You say, that was just brainwash stuff. Military is just brain. There wasn't really a bond there. There's no bond. It doesn't matter. You don't really care. Let's quit pretending. No, you see, with relationships, just because something starts in, in a small way, like a child, like the trust, like the dependent, just because it starts like that doesn't mean as it grows, you kind of leave all that behind. And I think this is what Jesus is saying. Yes, you can grow old and cynical. Yes, you can look at the Bible and go, yeah, it's, it's really ancient. I'm not sure what it means. Uh, the person who lived and died and it says he rose again. I'm not sure I believe all that. You could be cynical. There's really only one way to God. I've grown up past that kind of stuff. Only a child would believe that. Or you could listen to what Jesus is really pointing us to, and that is the child. The child 
in that stage of life where they are so dependent on the parent really is in a state of, of needing to be cared for by another. That's, that's life, that's survival, that's not immaturity, that's reality. And another piece of reality is that God made this world. He created everything. What, what helps me make sense of reality is that we bear God's image. That's why intuitively I know human beings matter. Life isn't cheap. Yet I can look at this world and see it is broken and messed up. And you know what explains that? I, I go to the Bible and it explains how sin came into this world and messed every single thing up. And then I go to God's word and I hear this story. It is the story, the story of God where he promised to come and redeem his people. And he made promises to Israel and really promises to the world. And he made those promises. But then the last third of the Bible we call the New Testament, God keeps those promises by sending his son Jesus. And we would have been hopeless to remedy it all for ourselves, make it right for the people we care about make creation, set everything right, we would be hopeless in ourselves. But Jesus redeemed this world. It is immature, immature to see yourself hope, hopelessly dependent on God and not yourself. That's reality. My prayer is that for some of you who are struggling with putting all this together, like, what is reality here? I have questions trying to sort through it all. You'll do the tough work of asking those questions. But in that moment, be open. Don't shut down because of cynicism. Explore. Even pray that God might open up your heart, that you might be able to understand what really is true, what really is good, what really is beautiful. This is receiving the kingdom like a child. We have such a picture, and we're going to recognize that picture today, a picture of receiving the kingdom like a a child. And that picture that the Lord gave us was a meal. It's a meal in which Jesus himself is the host. I'm not the host. Jesus himself is the host. It's his supper. We call it the Lord's Supper. He and he has invited those who have put their total dependence on him to trust in in him and to receive this meal. And in, in a very unique way, Jesus is not only the host, but he is the meal because he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. When we come to the Lord's table, this isn't about us doing something for God. This is recognizing we've received something from him. It's a picture. It's a small picture, but it's a a powerful picture of God's grace of which we only receive. We receive by faith. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, when the bread and the juice come around, I welcome you to take it. If you say, Curtis, I'm just not there yet. What I would ask you to do is uh, feel free to pass that tray by. It won't be awkward. It won't be a problem. But, but don't stop there. Have a conversation. Maybe with a pastor. Maybe with a friend that brought you. Maybe with someone that you know cares about where you are in, the, in your relationship with God. And just open up. Ask hard questions. And say, I want to receive this, but like, this is going to be a challenge. Begin that path. We only receive. And we receive by faith the grace of the Lord. Let me pray, and then the deacons are going to come and serve us. Father, thank you for the words of life, the words of promise that you give, the hope you give. And I pray, even as we, in these moments, take time to reflect on what it means to be called by your name, 
to have received grace that only you could give. That you'll make our hearts deeply, deeply grateful. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.